Welcome to the ESI Ninja podcast. I'm your host and the original ESI Ninja, Sarah Skeens. I've been in the e-discovery industry for over 10 years now, and over the course of my career, I have had the opportunity to meet some really incredible individuals, and I've gotten to work in a variety of areas in data. Getting to know and learn from some of the top thought leaders in our industry has been an exciting experience. And on this podcast, I'd really like to share that opportunity with you. We will be speaking with the thought leaders and innovators in data, getting a chance to learn and to grow and meet the most interesting minds out there. So sit back, relax, and let's enter the Data Dojo. The thoughts and opinions of all participants on the show are that of the individuals and do not reflect the thoughts or opinions of their employers. Welcome everyone. We hear a lot of different terms thrown around in e-discovery when it comes to using technology. As I've moved through my career, I've always had a healthy curiosity to question what others are telling me about the use of different technology. We have a duty to use that technology in a way that's defensible and clear. And we also have a duty to educate those using that technology to understand it fully, from what it does to how it does it, and why it is defensible and the requirements and even the limitations of that technology. With that curiosity, I found myself pulled towards the world of data science. And I was very lucky um, to meet our guest today, Dr. Dave Lewis, who has been more than happy to indulge my curiosity and answer all of my inquiries over the past few years. No matter how crazy or strange they have been, um, Dave is the chief data scientist at Brainspace. He's worked in machine learning for more than 30 years, including stints at Bell Labs, AT&T Labs, and as a visiting professor at several universities. And he has helped me more than I could ever thank him for to understand the complexity that goes along with machine learning and gain a healthy respect for the process. He's dialed me back in a few times when I've gone a little neurotic trying to know what the algorithms were, <laughs> reminding me that that's not always the most important part. Um, so today we're going to talk to Dave about the basics of machine learning to educate not only those in e-discovery, but also those who are interested in data and even going into data science. Good morning, Dave, and welcome to the podcast. I'm very, very excited to have you on today. Well, thank you for uh, having me, Sarah. That was a, a wonderful and charitable uh, introduction. You, you have uh, listened to many a phone call with me and my crazy ideas, yeah. and <laughs> some of them you've been excited about, which has been great. I have been. So, <laughs> um, so to get our listeners uh, better acquainted with you and, and kind of getting an idea of how you got into your profession and also how you transitioned in e-discovery, can you tell us about how you got into data science and then also how that led you to this world of e-discovery. Sure. Uh, so I, um, I studied math and computer science uh, in college and then I did my PhD in computer science. But uh, also through much of college, um, I wrote fiction as well, uh, never successfully. Uh, but so I was always torn between uh, words and numbers. And so uh, in graduate school, I was drawn to uh, information retrieval that is the, the field of working with search and classification of documents and and that's what I've, I've worked on through my whole career uh, as it's uh, the field has evolved um, it has transitioned from relatively simple statistical methods to more and more sophisticated machine learning methods and so I've gotten drawn a lot into not just natural language processing but into machine learning uh, over the years and so I was very fortunate uh, when I was at Bell Labs uh, to be in the uh, machine learning group, which uh, had a lot of folks uh, like 
Rob Shapiri and Yoram Singer and Yoav Freund and whatnot who did, you know, kind of pioneering work in, in machine learning. And so uh, learned a lot in that environment. And then um, actually after eight years at Bell Labs and AT&T Labs, I started consulting on text analytics and, you know, widely all, all sorts of data consulted for search engine companies and startups. And um, I got drawn into eDiscovery back in 2005. I had been working on a project that involved uh, retrieval of scanned documents, and I'd gone out to look for a large collection of scanned documents that was publicly available and found the uh, material that had been collected in uh, the big tobacco lawsuits. So I thought, this is great. There's like oh, 7 cool. million documents, 40 million pages of scanned stuff. It was incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, I'd started working with that. And then um, I had been involved uh, for many years, I think since uh, mid-90s, with a uh, a project called TREK at the National Institute of Standards, which is a yearly evaluation of information retrieval technologies. And uh, as with many people, my route to e-discovery was through Jason Barron. So Jason Barron had gone to the, the National Institute of Standards and said, hey, you should work on this e-discovery stuff. And Ellen Verhees, who ran TREK, said, um, okay, you should talk to Dave Lewis because he's got this big collection of documents, which seem kind of like legal documents. And so then Jason and Doug Ord at University of Maryland and I ended up running the first um, TREK legal track, the first uh, National Institute of Standards evaluation oh, wow. of uh, e-discovery technology. And then through that, I began meeting all these e-discovery people and discovering what the cool problems were. And then it eventually just took over my whole life. It took over all my consulting eventually. <laughs> and then I, I joined up full-time with, uh, with Brainspace about three years ago. So we just fully roped you in. <laughs> yeah, and I, I got completely, you know, you get a little bit in and you get sucked more and more and more in and pretty soon you're, you're doing nothing but e-discovery. Yeah, I like that you said cool problems. Yeah, it because is. There's so many attorneys that are like, oh, I can't do anything. And for, you know, the people on the tech side, it's like, yeah. we get to solve something and it's something different and yeah. new. And yeah, that's so exciting. Yeah, well, I always had to remind myself as because I did consulting in e-discovery for many years and expert witness work and consulting on uh, as, as meet and confers and things like that. And um, I always had to remind myself that what I found was a cool technical problem was to the lawyers a real nuisance who wanted to get past this mess so they could get on to, you know, the facts and the law and the legal arguments and things like that. Yeah. So I had to remind myself, you know, in some sense, we're a sideshow to the attorneys, you know, oh, the yeah. attorneys and the judges, they're the real, you know, we're, if, if they could do without us, they would, but yeah. uh, they can't. So good for us. <laughs> I love that. I love the yeah. sideshow. I'm going to, yeah. I'm definitely stealing yeah. that one. Yeah. So, and I think part of it, it's interesting. You said um, the 2005 reference of, you know, working in that, that, those things, because nowadays I still run into folks that have never seen machine learning that are still dealing with paper that you know all of this is brand new to them and it's so funny because a lot of us have been doing this for quite a while and to us it's you know hey throw machine learning you know we have all these different technologies and to them it's again a sideshow like what is this <laughs> what are you trying to make me do yeah. um so i think a lot of this uh today as we're going through i think it'll be great for a lot of the attorneys out there to start to understand the technology, to remove a little bit of the fear and make it more of an excitement for them and less of a, a nuisance. Yeah. So I'm sure we will still <laughs> yeah. always be slightly a nuisance. Yes. Um, 
And so that word machine learning has become a buzzword. I feel like you hear folks using it all the time. And I, I feel like sometimes they don't fully understand what they're saying. It's, it's like those, you know, AI, machine learning, and everyone thinks robots. <laughs> and they forget, you know, the math behind it. Um, and, and it really has a rich history. And it's just, it's new to our particular field for a lot of folks. Um, so with that buzzword, um, and really it creates a lot of solutions in how we handle data. And I really want to get down to the core of what it is and the basics of how do you define machine learning to someone who is brand new in this field? Okay. Uh, so I think the, probably the simplest definition is machine learning just refers to software that improves its performance by exposure to data. So you, you write some software, uh, but it doesn't really do anything until it sees some data. And then it sees some more data and it can do it better. And it sees some more data and can do it better. And in a nutshell, that's really all, all it is. Um, at, and I think then the, the other thing I would say is because there is all the hype in the air about uh, artificial intelligence, or some people refer to AGI, artificial general intelligence, which, by which they mean kind of real, real intelligence, or real artificial intelligence, uh, you know, we're nowhere near that right now. Uh, what, what we do is we have the ability now to do some very simple kinds of problems with machine learning, mostly uh, classification problems where you sort of take some data as input and you make some prediction what it is. You know, is the document relevant or non-relevant? Does this picture contain a cat or not? You know, sort of yes, no questions, counting questions, things like that. Um, and, and even those we do imperfectly, right? Because yeah. the systems don't actually have understanding what they do is from exposure to data, they can learn some kind of very complicated input-output mappings, uh, but they don't reason. And, you know, obviously there are people working on, you know, attempts to do things that are more like true reasoning, but we're very far from those right now. Uh, and, and so I, I, one of the first things I say is um, when I give talks on AI, the first slide I often put up is kind of um, a timeline of progress of AI uh, over the decades as AI scientists perceive it. And then I overlay that progress in AI as the media perceives it. Oh no. <laughs> because this is actually the third time we've done this, right? We've had two AI hype waves previously, one in the 1960s and one in the 1980s. And um, probably all, we're both, of course, too young to remember the one in the 1960s, but we've read about it. Um, you're too young to remember the one in the 1980s, but I remember it. I was born, what, 86? <laughs> yeah, as long right. as it was. So, yeah. So um, the one in the 1980s, everyone was saying it was the Japanese. The Japanese were going to build these intelligent uh, computers. They were going to run Prologue. They were going to take over all business. And we were falling behind and whatnot. And the flavor was uh, very much uh, like some of the kind of hype that we have now. So, so there ha and, and then it crashed. And in fact, it crashed so bad uh, that it's referred to in the field as the AI winter. Uh, in the in the sense that uh, there was like at the time there was a discussion of the nuclear winter, like they had a nuclear war that the yeah. <laughs> uh, 
So the idea was that the AI winter was so disastrous that AI had been wiped out. And indeed, the government stopped funding AI. And, uh, and, and then, you know, then it started to come back. And so the, the hype wave was through the 70s, to the early 80s. Then there was kind of the AI winter. And then machine learning began to creep back in the late 80s and the next couple of decades and, until, you know, there was some, some re recent advances, mostly in speech recognition and computer vision which sparked uh, the latest yeah. hype wave. But I think also what sparks it is there's just kind of a refractory period, right? It, 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 there, there needs to be time that passes before we're ready to, to you know, go off the rails again, you know? And, yeah. and now we're off the rails again, and we'll have another AI winner, you know, in a year or two or three years. And, um, but the progress will continue. The progress has been steady the whole time, uh, but the public perceptions um, uh, are a little more uh, erratic. Yeah, and I think it's hard too when we, um, when I use it in the field, a lot of times I have to give that exact same speech where somebody will say, well, the AI will take care of it. And I'm like, no, no. no. <laughs> this isn't the robot with the reasoning that is going to replace humans. This is, and I love that at Brainspace, you guys use the word augmented intelligence. Yes. Because that's truly what we're looking at here. We're taking the human and the technology and we're using them together, have your reasoning and having a machine that can do these complex um, calculations and help you solve these problems and bringing it together. So thank you because that's my normal soapbox that I jump on yeah. okay. <laughs> when I work right. with clients. Yeah. Um, so now that they get to hear it from somebody who is a data scientist, yeah. To get a little more back up there. Um, and I think that, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense that, you know, as the buzzwords come up, um, folks tend to put more stock into that it can do things that it can't truly do. They, they lose sight of those limitations of it. Um, but then they also lose sight of the benefit of it because they want it to do, you know, the, the sun and the moon and replace humans and all of those pieces. Um, so with it being, you know, a, a really powerful tool, especially with our data set sizes are growing. Um, it, every day, the data set sizes that come in, I see, are massive. And the majority of that data is irrelevant. Um, and it's interesting, I, I use Brainspace a lot. And as I you know, employ that technology on the data, the trends that I see, it, it's so cool to see how, how that machine gets to those relevant documents from what it learns and how we use that tool to just get an idea of what's out there. So I wanted to talk about the different types of machine learning. Um, I, I like to kind of put them together and use them, and I think folks um, don't understand that when we work in different areas of the software that it's actually using different types of machine learning to get there. And so they, they kind of get hung up on one definition and idea of it, the inputs and the outputs, and they lose sight of how we, you know, are actually approaching that data. So um, the main one that I think everybody knows is supervised learning. Um, yeah. Basically behind your technology assisted review workflows, that's the type of technology that we're using. Um, I could go in a whole soapbox about technology assisted review and what it actually means from definition. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure you could do the same thing. Yeah. Um, but a supervised learning, can you give us a little bit about what that really entails and how that works? Sure. So this is, in some sense, supervised learning is, is the one that people probably tend to be most aware of, uh, that you're doing machine learning because, because you feel like you're teaching the machine, and so then it's natural to think of the machine learning yeah. there. So, and, and so, so all supervised learning means is that you've got 
some sort of uh, input, some sort of records, and you have a, um, a label you would assign, uh, like to attach to them. And you know, simple example would be, I'd like to know, is our documents relevant or non-relevant? So in supervised learning, I give the software some examples. So here's a document here that I think is relevant. Here's another document I think is relevant. Here's another document, I think this one's not relevant, and so on. And it's just you have the input and the desired output. And the desired output is just yes or no, is this relevant? And I give a bunch of examples like that to the software. And then it builds a statistical model. It, it looks at the document, it looks at, uh, and, and part of the issue is how the document's represented. So when it's looking at this document, what does that mean? Well, uh, it could be looking at the words. It could be looking at phrases or concepts that have been extracted by natural language processing. It could be looking at uh, the values of metadata fields, for instance. And so in, in BrainSpace, you know, we, can use, we can use all of those. All of those then go into a statistical model, and that statistical model then um, is trained such that its predictions on your training examples line up with the way you've labeled them. So you build a model that will tend to predict yes for the documents you said yes to and no for the documents that you said no to. And the idea being is if you have enough training data and a diverse enough training data and it's been accurately labeled, then when you take the model that does well on those training examples, it should also do well on examples it hasn't seen yet, where it doesn't know the right answers. And that's called generalization. So you, you don't want to just memorize the right answers on these particular documents. You want to build a model that generalizes so that it also tends to predict the right answers on new documents. And that's kind of supervised learning in a nutshell. And that's, I think that's a really good point that you made with the generalization because a lot of folks, they, um, they take their initial data set and they run that through, they do their training, they have everything they produce, and then they have data coming in from outside sources. And a lot of folks don't think into the fact that we can actually use that information from that original model. It's, it's built around the same concepts because your, your data coming in from the other parties are going to be along the same lines of what you're looking for because you have a general label, like you said, responsive. We, you have a definition for that. Um, you have a definition for not responsive. And so having that type of um, model, you can put, like you said, data in there that maybe it hasn't seen before, and it can start to classify that data for you and, and bringing out those pockets. Um, with supervised learning, um, in terms of training the system, we've seen lots of different things out there. Um, some folks want just random samples. Um, we've seen a lot more intelligent, judgmental sample, sampling technologies out there. Um, what can you uh, bring to the table about those in terms of, you know, random sampling versus some of these ones out here that are more um, like the diverse sampling that you guys have um, or where it's, you know, intelligently picking from the different groupings and things like that? Yeah. So, yeah, so I think there's, there's two key things there. Um, you know, if you train on enough random data, you'll eventually get a good model. But it t you tend to need a very large amount of data if you're training on randomly selected data. And this is particularly true when uh, the frequency of one of your categories is low. So, for instance, you know, let's say only 1% of your collection is relevant and people, you know, are collecting more and more broadly and putting more and more data into these systems that inevitably means that the, the richness is going down. So if you choose a random sample and only one document in 100 
is relevant, well, then you might label a thousand examples. You've only got 10 relevant ones there. You're not going to learn that much from it. Yep. So there's kind of two ways to address that. Um, you know, one is, you know, using what you know about the case. You know, if you know that if you have, and, and this is why I, I always sort of stress there's not, um, some people sort of pose keywords against machine learning and whatnot. And I always say, you know, this is kind of like they work happily together. You know, you yep. can, you can use keywords to, um, to do a search for documents you think are likely to be relevant training examples. And, the, and you know, what I always encourage people to do is you know, try to get a few with every single keyword that you think might be relevant. Uh, because the more diverse your relevant data is, the more aspects of relevance you're going to cover. And indeed, in, in BrainSpace, you can even turn, take your keywords and you can turn them into an initial model, which will then be updated by the training data. Uh, that itself then passes then to the second important thing you could do, which is to use active learning. So this is the intelligence selection you were talking about. And in, in active learning, the idea is you take your current model, which could be a model you created by hand, so we call this portable models in brain space, or it can be a model you've done a little bit of training on, and you use that model to guide a selection of examples in the next batch of training examples, or in a continuous workflow, say where you're reviewing uh, examples from the top of a ranking. And those are both those are both active learning methods. And there's a bunch of different active learning methods. Uh, BrainSpace supports, for instance, both relevance feedback, which is training from the top, and then methods that combine um, uncertainty and diversity of examples and, and things like that. But these um, these active learning techniques make a huge difference. I mean, they literally, you can get the same effectiveness with, you know, a hundred times less training data than you, than you would if you were choosing it randomly. So there's rarely, except for sort of odd legal contexts, uh, you know, where there's just an agreement in place that you have to train randomly or something like that. Yep. It's rarely a good idea to train purely randomly. And uh, with the richness of those data sets, so that, that sounds like that's a big challenge then for getting through the data in an efficient manner, because like you said, you have to try to find that pocket then, that needle in the haystack for the system to understand, here's what relevance looks like, here's something that is relevant or responsive. Um, so that kind of leads into, I think, unsupervised learning, mm -hmm. um, because I, I've noticed a lot of the data sets we get in, we look at it, we talk to counsel, we talk to the client, and there's just so much data being created in these companies that even the clients don't know really what's in there. Um, and so we're sitting there with a, how do we even start here? How do we, we don't even have keywords maybe. Um, we're still trying to figure it out. Sometimes we have clients that they, they don't have the insight. We don't have the contacts to really tell us what's in there. Um, so can you talk about a little bit with unsupervised and how that works rather than having those, you know, training models or the training documents to tell it what to do, how we, how we use that. Sure. So in, in unsupervised learning, uh, there's no notion of a user supplied right answer. The idea is that an unsupervised learning algorithm has some internal mathematical criterion uh, for uh, what patterns look like. And so uh, it, it's easier to, to talk probably in a, in a concrete case. So, so for instance, document clustering. Yep. So in a, doc, a document clustering algorithm will have some criterion for, 
you know, what it means for documents to be similar to each other. And it will go out and it will try to group documents into groups or into a hierarchy of groups such that documents that are similar to each other are in the same group. So you can, you can think of it, um, you know, if, if somebody had given a uh, set of groups and said, this, one goes, this document goes in this group, this one document goes in this group, then it would be supervised. Yep. In clustering, nobody's giving the algorithm a set of groups. It has to sort of figure out what, this, what sensible groups are. And its definition of sensible groups are that the documents that are in the same group are similar to each other. They have similar words or phrases or, or, or whatever one's clustering on. Uh, and this is helpful in the sense that, you know, it's kind of, look, ma, no hands. You feed <laughs> the data, you feed the data in, and it produces these groups. Yep. And then, you know, often this is used to drive um, a visual interface. So in, in BrainSpace, it's the wheel. Other software has used other visual interfaces that, that let you sort of navigate um, the set of groups of documents or a hierarchy of groups of documents. Um, and see summaries of those groups so that you can kind of very quickly um, get a handle on exactly the situation you're saying, which is a lot of times the attorneys just don't know what's in the data. You know, yeah. somebody, hey, somebody goes out, collects this stuff. Oh my gosh, we've got 10 million documents. What the heck is in there? You know, yeah. at the beginning, at the beginning, you may not even know, you know, is it, you know, English or German or Russian or what combination of languages, you know, you're, you, it may have been collected and you don't know whether it's the sales or engineering or how much there are of each and things like that. And these kind of particularly these sort of broad classifications of things tend to leap out from a, from a clustering. Uh, and uh, so that's, it's it very helpful then as an exploratory uh, uh, kind of analyses. Yeah. So that's, that's probably the most visible form of unsupervised learning. Um, Another form of unsupervised learning that's all under the hood in, in a number of products um, is what would be called uh, representation formation. Uh, and so, for instance, a, um, one technology for this is latent semantic analysis. And here, an unsupervised learning algorithm is analyzing a bunch of documents. And in this case, it's finding both documents that are similar to each other and words and phrases that are similar to each other and extracting a, an underlying representation of the documents in terms of, um, it's a bit grand to call them uh, underlying ideas or themes or something like that, yeah. but, it's, but it's at least statistical regularities that are useful for identifying relationships among words and phrases. And so, for instance, we, we use that, uh, a modified version of that as, a, as one of the technologies in our concept search, where you can type in a query and have it suggest related words. Yep, and so that kind of goes behind the, like, the near duplicates when we look at that. Yeah. Um, with yeah, the scores and, and things like yeah. that, those things. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's it's interesting in in that um, you, the, it's it's interesting to make a connection between in this case document clustering and some of these older technologies. So probably the the first um, grouping technology that people used in eDiscovery is as we began to even have eDiscovery software was detecting exact duplicates. Yeah. And that's done with what's called a hash code, which is, it's not machine learning, it's just kind of a, a tr it's, a, it's a kind of fingerprint you can extract from the document that makes it fast to discover whether two documents are identical. Yeah. And then people started looking then at, well, if we can detect exact duplicates, it might be interesting to detect near duplicates. Uh, and so near duplication 
sometimes near duplicate detection sometimes uses machine learning, sometimes it uses um, other kinds of pattern matching methods. And there's actually kind of a, uh, a fuzzy line between sort of broad near duplicate groups and narrow clusters, right? And indeed, in, oh, yeah. uh, in, in brain space, we actually build a hierarchy that has all of those in the same hierarchy. You start with broad clusters, you go to narrow clusters and narrower clusters, and then eventually you hit near duplicate groups, and then you eventually hit exact duplicate groups. Yep. Yeah. I, I remember, I, yeah. I always look at the, yeah. the little feathers on the outside with yeah. the E's and the, yeah. yep. <laughs> the ends to know where I'm looking. Yep. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and it's interesting because a lot of this, we don't realize that we were doing things very similar to what we're doing now yeah. early on. It was just a, oh, somebody hit a button, and now I know what the duplicates are. Yeah, and, and actually, I think unsupervised learning probably, if I remember the history of this, I think there was unsupervised learning showed up in some of the software. There was some very early clustering-based software in eDiscovery, even before I came into the field. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, so I think that's, that's actually been around a, a long time, because I think it was a very natural generalization from uh, people started thinking about detecting duplicates and then near duplicates and then they start thinking about clusters and whatnot. Um, so one other thing that I wanted to touch on too is um, in, in looking at all of these different types of machine learning um, was coming across reinforcement learning. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like it's something that is starting to show up in the e-discovery space. Some folks are looking at it. Um, but can you give us a little background on reinforcement learning and how that's something that might start to come into the space? Sure. Uh, so, so reinforcement learning, and and people will have uh, maybe heard about this in the context of uh, AlphaGo, uh, which was a program, computer game playing program that that beat the world uh, Go playing championship, and and it now, of course, is is it, it could it could beat anybody at chess, of course, but that's been true for a while. Yeah. Uh, but Go was kind of a an unsolved problem for for computers, or, or computer performance at Go was quite bad for a long time. And reinforcement learning was kind of central to the uh, to AlphaGo. And what reinforcement learning is is basically acknowledging is the world is not as simple as supervised versus unsupervised. Um, it's you often have feedback from the world or from a trait or from a teacher or simply from experience in the world. But the feedback doesn't come right away. You may have to um, do a bunch of different things before you get the feedback. So um, in an e-discovery context, for instance, uh, you start out and you, um, you know, you've got some initial training data and you, you then have a choice of, okay, well, maybe I'm gonna do several rounds of training and on this round I'm gonna use, you know, diverse active learning and then I'm gonna do a bunch of relevance feedback and then I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna grab some clusters and label those and, and um, and then I'm going to, you know, I've got to decide um, how big my control set is, and I have to decide what my cutoff is going to be, and I need to think about, um, you know, what it costs to have documents reviewed yep. during training <laughs> versus <laughs> review, reviewed after the classifier calls things out, and, um, you know, what's my privilege review cost, and things. so there's all these sort of things. At the end of the day, there's a check that oh, somebody writes for how much this whole process cost. Yep. And you would like to minimize the cost of that whole process uh, subject to meeting your production requirements, say. Okay, well, in some sense, that cost at the end is the training signal you'd really like to optimize. But there's a lot of distance between that 
there might be a distance in, in, in time and, and also in actions. You may have taken you know, hundreds of actions and, and, and months may have gone by before you experienced that final cost. Yeah. But you would like to somehow propagate that final cost over a bunch of projects and have it inform decisions like what kind of active learning should I be using or how much training should I do or where should I set cutoffs and things like that. And that's the kinds of problems that people try to deal with in reinforcement learning where you have this delayed reward and you want to use it to inform your earlier decisions. And it's just like that in, a, in playing a game, right? You have to make your first move in the game, say a game of, of Go, is you don't know for a couple hundred moves, potentially, whether you won or not, right? Yeah. And so somehow, though, what you learned from playing a bunch of games and taking a lot of moves has to be propagated back to deciding how to make in each individual move. And so people have started to look at that in, in e-discovery. Um, I, I guess at the, at the cost of mentioning a competitor, I'll mention that, that, uh, that Jeremy Pickens uh, from Catalyst. Um, but anyway, Jeremy Pickens, for instance, has, uh, who's an old friend of mine, has done some work on reinforcement learning for e-discovery. And, um, and I've been working with a, a graduate student at Georgetown, Eugene Yang, who's also been, been looking at these issues. Uh, and so I think, you know, this is a, a potential kind of, you know, future boundary here. It's a much, much harder problem. You know, the nice thing about supervised learning is, yeah. you know, it's kind of like, here's the input, here's the right output, learn how to go from the input to the output. In reinforcement learning is, okay, here's some actions I'm going to take and some more action I'm going to take and more action. And, and then eventually I get some reward and I've got to somehow figure out how to work backwards to what I should have done at the beginning. That's so funny because that's kind of the human thing whenever we end a case and you do that debrief and you're yep. like, what did we learn? Yep, that's right. <laughs> How do we get to this faster next time? So it's, yeah. Yeah, it's taking what we're doing and it's just, it's making it more effective and efficient because if you think about it, you start to forget, um, you know, your brain can only take so many metrics in um, and information and put it all together. So that's really, that's really interesting. I'm excited to see where that goes. I think there's a lot of potential there. Um, and I'm sure most of the folks, uh, listening to this that, uh, you know, write that check, um, are very happy to hear <laughs> that, that is something that we're looking at. Um, cause we try to minimize costs wherever we can, but you know, it's, it's a learning process. You can't become an expert in something until you've, you know, you've experienced it, you've learned it, you've failed, you've, gotten new information about how to get to that final place. So that's, that's really cool. Um, so as we're talking about all this, uh, one of the things that I think we've touched on throughout and is definitely something that I, I was hoping to drive home. And um, every time I talk to you, you help me drive this home a little bit more in my brain of how to you know, get out there and say this. Um, but what I see a lot is a fear. Um, I know uh, Moore Grossman did a presentation I saw on attorneys fearing algorithms. Um, and it, it's true when you're out there and you're talking to folks they're, um, you know, they think it's a magic button and that's part of wanting to do, you know, this series and, and get folks to understand how this stuff works. Um, and one of the things is the limitations of, um, you know, all of this technology. And we talked about the inputs and outputs. And if you put in a bad input, the system's going to give you a bad output. A lot of times the conversation with the, the folks who are actually doing the review and, and telling the system, here's what relevant means, here's what not relevant means, is getting them to kind of think like the machine mm -hmm. and understand that lack of reasoning. So for them, they say, well, this is attached to this. So this is responsive because of that attachment. 
that's not how the machine <laughs> reasons that. And so it's interesting that that breakdown. And I think that's why it's important for folks to understand what's going on in the background, because then they can give better inputs to receive those better outputs at the end. Yeah. Of the yeah. And I think that's a really critical point because, um, the more that one understands about how the the machine is is classifying the, the documents, the more you can be um, create workflows and definitions of the classification problem that are going to get the the best out of machine learning. So you you yeah. referred to this very important point of uh, almost always in these systems, what you want to be doing is assessing the document based on what people sometimes call the four corners of the document. Right, so it's it's the material that the system is going to be looking at when it's classifying the document. And as you said, if the um, if say a, an attachment to a document is relevant, and the document the email itself would not be relevant on the face, uh, one strategy is well, you you build a classifier that works just on the face of each document on the four corners, and you label it that way. Yeah. Um, you may need to make a note for other purposes, for review purposes, that well, this email is relevant because I know it has a relevant attachment, and that might be important for production. But you don't want to tell machine learning that you want to, yeah. you want to, and and in production, then you want to then roll up the decisions from machine learning in a fashion that's appropriate for production. So, for instance, it might be that you know we have an email message and two attachments, and if the email message or either of the two attachments, if any of those three, say, have a score over 0.8, we're going to produce it, right? And, and then you're yeah. letting the machine learning do what it does in this case. In this case, it's working only on the four corners. You're teaching it consistently. You're getting predictions from it consistently. But then you're embedding its predictions in a larger workflow, which does the right thing for production purposes. Yep. Yeah. And so and those, these kinds of issues are kind of critical. And, and I think yeah. these are the kinds of issues that, um, you know, that LSPs uh, like, like yours, you know, are, 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 are really bring added value where, where you sort of know how to take advantage of these things and, and realize, well, it's not just what the machine is going to do. It's what, it's the larger process and workflow that the machine's predictions are embedded in. Yep, and I think that's what scares a lot of folks. That's usually the question I get is, well, if I code this as, you know, not responsive to this family member and, you know, later there's an email that's like this email I coded responsive, how are we sure we're going to find that? Or I coded this email not responsive, but the attachment's responsive. How are we going to find that? And it's them understanding that the machine will get there. It will find it. It's, it's working everything. It's just working it individually. And then your, your process of production of bringing families back together is a workflow. And yep. I think that's the hardest thing for, for folks to get over <laughs> that yeah. I, I generally have to explain, a, you know, a few times. And even so, as we're going through it, just, you know, holding hands through that, that's, you know, just how it works. Is there anything that you've seen where folks have maybe complained about technology and it really is just driven by not understanding um, or what, what are some of the limitations we should be aware of with machine learning? Um, as we're going through this process. Yeah, so I mean, I think the, uh, you know, we touched on one already, which was the kind of four corners issue. Um, I think another one that I would say, and this, I guess it's, it's somewhat a, a limitation, but it's also just kind of advice on how to get the most out of it, is if there's an aspect of the process 
that you can do without machine learning, particularly if you can do it perfectly without machine learning, you shouldn't try to teach the machine to do that instead. So for instance, a, a common one that comes up a lot is date ranges, right? Yeah. So, so if, you, if you know that only documents in a particular date range are responsive, um, you don't want to teach the software that. You already know it. You can write a metadata query that will, that will do exactly that. And in fact, it can even be kind of counterproductive. So, so for instance, let's say you've got documents from you know, 2010 to 2014, and you know only the documents from 2013 to 2014 are, are relevant, right? Um, what you don't want to do is sort of say, okay, relevance is everything that's about you know, product X, and it's between 2013 and 2014, and everything else is non-relevant. Because yeah. now you're forcing the machine to learn not just what product X is, but also that it should only be saying yes to the documents from 2013 to 2014, even though the ones from 2012, 2011 and 2012 look very similar, right? Yeah. Um, so whereas you know you can handle that exactly by just writing a metadata query later. Yeah. Um, and indeed, you know, the, the trickier issue then is, so let's say you know that's true. Um, the simplest thing to do is, okay, you do the metadata query up front and you only put the documents from 2013 and 2014 into machine learning and the others just don't even become available for supervised learning. That's yes. the simplest thing to do and that's the safest thing to do. Um, on the other hand, there can sometimes be advantages to say, okay, I'm going to let the 2010, 2011, 2012 documents in as well. I'm going to train on them Maybe because just I'm, I'm, it's a really low richness concept and I'm having trouble finding relevant documents at all. So I might even let in some documents into the training process that I know are non-relevant um, because I can pick out the, a small number of additional relevant documents from those and I know that I can screen them out later. Yeah. Because, you know, I can, I'll be getting a prediction that, yes, this document from 2011 is relevant, but that's fine. I can do a metadata query that throws it out later. So these are the kinds of, you know, the, the overall lesson there is, is the same one as before, which is gonna, you're going to wrap machine learning within some kind of workflow process and other, other kind of operations. Yeah. Um, but then also the, the overriding lesson is, is don't, make, don't make the software learn something you already know. Yeah. Right. And, and that you can simply write a, a query for. I think understanding that definition yeah. of your relevance up front too, yeah. and, and understanding, yes. are you putting something in that definition that is clearly, like you said, something you can just take out through a metadata filter. Um, and then understanding what tags are actually training the classifier. Mm -hmm. um, we see that all the time where someone will tag something and they say, well, I tagged it this and that's, that's not a tag that actually teaches the classifier anything. Oh, I see, yeah, right. Yeah, and so they'll say, they're like, why well, tag this issue? Well, your classifier yeah. is based on responsive and not responsive, yeah. not the issue. We could create a classifier on that issue. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the other thing people are afraid of is multiple classifiers. Yeah. But with your workflows, a lot of times the multiple yeah. classifiers I find are more efficient than trying to shove everything in one classifier and trying to make that definition fit in that one little positive or negative um, tag that you have going. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, and this is something I encourage people uh, to, to really look at, which is, and it, and in some sense, it's a process that is 
kind of analogous to say what somebody setting up a database does or, or even, you know, creating a spreadsheet where you're just saying, what are the columns? What are the kind of meaningful things I want to put this here? Yeah. Um, you know, it, you don't necessarily, as you said, want to throw everything into one yes, no distinction. You know, if your definition of um, responsiveness in a case has kind of like three really distinct areas, um, maybe three really distinct topics or, or, uh, they apply to very distinct sets of documents, you know, engineering versus sales documents or something like that. Um, it can often be cheaper to train three classifiers than one because you can sort of train three really focused classifiers, um, combine the documents that all of them find, and that may be easier for the software to learn than to say, okay, well, I have to figure out that these sales documents that talk about this and these engineering documents that talk about this are really both relevant but a bunch of stuff that's kind of in between the two is not relevant. And yeah. it can often be easier for it to not have to do that, where it can kind of just chop off some very precise little pieces. And then again, once I, I'll keep repeating this again, your workflow at the end can recombine those, you know, yeah. just because e even, you know, it may not be that you're going to produce three different sets. It may not be you're even going to tell your adversaries that these came from three different sets. But, you know, for your own internal processes, it may be useful to think of this as three problems instead of one. Yeah, and that feeds into two. You can use the classifiers for multiple uh, questions and issues. So it may not just be responsive, not responsive. You may have a particular issue you're looking for. You may have privilege. Um, you know, really anything you can think of as long as you have a, you know, a positive negative, then you can do that and then, like you said, break it up. So in terms of richness, um, would you say that getting data sets that are, um, you know, a higher level of richness, really that's a, a key factor in the efficiency of the classifier? You know, I would, I would actually say, I would actually say the opposite, right? In the sense that where are you going to get the biggest gain from supervised learning? Well, you're going to get the biggest gain when relevant documents are very rare. Right. In some sense, the lower the richness is, as long as you can find a few relevant documents to kick off the active learning process, the lower the richness is, the more value you're going to get out of a technology assisted review because the more junk you're going to throw away. So this is this and this is the actually one of the biggest things that I always uh, want to stress is supervised learning has no difficulty with low richness. Relevant uh, evaluation has problems with low richness. Yes, validation. and probably we don't want to get because I think we could do a whole podcast on the challenges yeah. of evaluation. But but I but it's uh, we'll, we'll just maybe just give the teaser that you know don't worry about low richness for using supervised learning. Um, worry about low richness for evaluation. But yeah. you should be worrying about low issues for evaluation if you're doing a manual review. It has nothing to do with the machine learning aspect of it. It's just yeah. that, as you said, as you say, Maura Grossman has made this point many times, um, we somehow hold um, supervised learning to a higher standard than we hold human reviews, even though the challenges of evaluating the two are, are, are equally difficult. Yep. And that's, uh, we could definitely, we could probably do three hours on validating. <laughs> no, um, no one would be listening at the yeah. end except you and I, but yeah. <laughs> I, was say, I was like, we, yeah. we could go for days yeah. on that one. Yeah. Um, so, so really it's that balance then of the, the classifier itself can do very well with low richness, but the cost of putting data in the classifier. 
So if you're looking at, you know, you're looking at 20 gigs and you have someone charging you for 20 gigs versus, you know, like you said, if there's some things like a date filter or things that you can do perfectly, get that down. And then, but the classifier itself, if you wanted to put 20 gigs into it, it'll do well. I think I would stress that the people should not fear low richness for using supervised learning. Um, low richness is, is, is actually not the hardest problem one deals with. I, I think the, the hardest problem one deals with is, is simply the, the different uh, concepts are, are, are more or less easy to recognize. So, you know, if you have, um, so for instance, I would, um, you know, someone can feel much more confident about a very low richness problem that has sort of a price precise definition where the relevant documents all, you know, contain particular technical terms or product names or things like that. On the other hand, you could have something that's pretty high richness, you know, 20, 30% richness, but the definition of responsiveness turns on kind of subtle legal notions and, and, and the relevant ideas are expressed in kind of very indirect ways and not in consistent ways. There's a lot of ambiguity. That problem with 20% richness may be much harder than the problem with, say, 2% richness. Got it. Yep. So it goes back to that definition of yeah. what, and, what and is that's, relevant. And that's, that's the thing. I'll, I'll mention the thing that, that um, it's – I, I always encourage people to do, and I'm afraid it gets done very rarely, which is at the beginning of the project, you you take a sample, probably not a random sample, but you take, you know, you do a, a query, you do a, you know, diverse queries, or maybe you take your first batch out of active learning or something like that. But you take a sample and you give it to two reviewers using the same definition, and you have them review it blindly and you compare how well they agree. And that will tell you more about how your uh, project is going to come out than anything else. That is really interesting because I've always I've always jumped on the you know the prevalence sample right away yeah. and and told folks you know your your perception yeah. may be different from the person next to you yeah. and are you you know giving a clear message? That's a really interesting way to evaluate the clarity of the message, the yep. clarity of that review protocol because we see it all the time where we get yeah. you know into it and then they realize oh, our, our reviewers that we trained have, they have no clue, or our documents itself, we've gotten in there, and they're really, that definition's not good for a classifier. Yeah, and if you do that up front, you can save yourself a lot of work, because, you know, what, what's really sad is when somebody finds that, you know, after they've labeled like 3,000 training documents or something, or, or worse, after they've, you know, reviewed 50,000 documents or something, and then, and then it's hard to go back and clean it up and all that. So, you know, the, the earlier you can, get a sense of, and now, now inevitably you learn things as you go, you know, you, you know more when you've looked at 5,000 documents than when you've looked at 50. And yep. sometimes you do have to go back and, and do cleanup and there's, there's tools for, for sort of helping you do cleanup. But um, I, I really do encourage people to, to try to get a handle on that up front. Yeah. I think it's a good way too, to show them, you know, the human side of it is that you have bias, you have different perspectives and that, that has to be um, you know, something to consider as you're going through and just defining how do you, how do you actually define the positive versus yeah. the negative for the machine to understand? Yep. So I know we're, we're coming right to the end. Um, we could, 
we could talk for the entire day, yeah. I feel like, about this. Um, so one of the things I like to end with um, is what's your favorite part of e-discovery? And it doesn't have to be machine learning. Everyone always seems to go with the topic that we <laughs> talked about. Um, but, you know, what, what gets you out of bed every morning and makes you excited to be in the field of e-discovery? Well, uh, I mean, what I'm tempted to say is to do the thing everybody does, because what drew me in was the machine learning. And it, it happened to be that the, the kinds of machine learning, um, I had done research and active learning for, for many years. And so, for instance, the, the centrality of that, the e-discovery, was one of the things that drew me in. But I, but I will give a somewhat different answer, which, which is somewhat uh, related to my work in consulting, which is um, I enjoy working with lawyers. Uh, in the sense that I find um, the law a it's it's kind of um, it, it's it's its own sort of parallel system of reasoning, uh, and 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 actually I, I really enjoyed this when I was a an expert witness, uh, where you have to work with an attorney and you have to make an argument which um, is a valid argument on the scientific side and is an effective argument on the legal side. And, you know, when I'm working with attorneys, I go back and forth and say, they would say, well, you know, can you say this? And I say, well, no, scientifically, I can't say this, but I can say this. And they say, well, that doesn't help me legally. And, you know, <laughs> and, and, but you would go back and forth and eventually you find, you find, eventually you find something that satisfies both legal systems. And it's kind of like, a, you know, a, talking with somebody from another country or uh, yeah. another planet or something. Uh, so, uh, you know, and, and you sort of have to make, uh, you have to sort of, um, you know, work in both of these formal systems, which are kind of both different and, and, and uh, interesting. I feel like it takes a, the right yeah. personality too, yeah. to have that, that scientific and then be able to work with the, you know, the legal side. Um, I, I cannot thank you enough for doing this. Um, I am excited to hopefully have you back and you know, do some talk about validation, try to keep it to an hour. <laughs> right. Right. Um, but I, I really, I feel like yeah. this stuff is invaluable. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me on. It's been a blast. Thanks again, Dave. All right. Take much care. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us on the ESI Ninja podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and check out our website, www.theesininja.com for more content and our blog. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget, with the ESI Ninja on the loose, data doesn't stand a chance. Yeah.